she called me when she was leaving the firm and she's, Leanne, I have an offer. You always talk to me about managing money and like asking for money. Can you help me negotiate this offer that I hope is going to come through in a couple of days? So I sat with her. We, I talked with her. I had her do the research when I really helped her approach it from more like of a one-on-one collaborative standpoint. And even though the offer was coming in more than what she was making, I was like, no, you're way more valuable than that. And literally I could, I know that. <laughs> and she ended up making $35,000 more than the drop she had before and $17,000 more than their initial offer. Hello, hi, I'm Erin Vandeven. Thanks for joining me today. This is Medium Lady Talks. This podcast is about figuring out the medium effort way to get the most out of life today. I hope the things I unpack here can role model and invite you to sort out your own ways to live life in the present. This is a show about experimenting to get closer to what matters most. I'm glad you're here. So let's settle in. Okay, hello, hi, and welcome to Medium Lady Talks. I'm your host, Erin Vandeven, and today I am joined by guest and friend, Leanne Hannaway. Leanne and I met through a class called Slay the Mic, which is an amazing course on trusting your own voice and putting your voice to the good work that lives within you by the one and only Jam Gamble. And that was actually, Leanne, it feels like yesterday, but it was actually a year and a half, almost two years ago. I know. It feels that time during the pandemic was so compressed. Yeah. But then now you're like, yeah, it feels like yesterday. Yeah. I think that part is because Jam cultivates this environment where you start to support one another. So since taking the class, which is 11 weeks long, and you really get to know people on a very intimate level. But then now I follow you on social. So I'm like part of whatever you're putting on socials and likewise. And so Leanne has an incredible podcast called No Boss of Me. And it's fantastic. It's an immediate listen. You will learn so much. You will smile. You will have aha moments. And I just I heard your first four episodes, first five episodes. I re-listened to a bunch of episodes. And Leanne, I just had to have you on the podcast. So I reached out. And here we are today. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much, Erin. And like you said, I think the Slay the Mic fam, particularly our cohort, I think we're a special cohort because we all follow each other. We're all into each other's lives and really supporting what each other does. And I too have listened to your podcast. I love this podcast. It's so great. And even just the premise, Medium Lady is so perfect. I named mine No Boss of Me just because I grew up a daughter in a Caribbean family, primitive immigrant family. And being a daughter, there's so much responsibility, like even more so than I do think for the men in my family or the boys in my family. And my mom always tells me, I would always say to my brother, you're not the boss with me. And I think I like really took that all throughout my life, trying to find ways where I could have ownership, control and independence. And for me being a CPA, it really manifested itself in the way that I look at money and the way I manage money from a point of view of, I need to know what I'm doing so that that money isn't the boss of me that I could figure out what I want to do with it. I could have partnerships when it comes to money. I could have other folks who are responsible in the case of an an advisor, but it's ultimately me being really the boss, the boss. (laughs) And And I'm afraid of that word boss, which is a big thing. 
Yeah, not just being a boss when someone says, hey, you're going to be the boss of this project, but claiming the word boss for yourself and saying, I'm the founder and creator of Medium Lady Talks, the podcast and community. And nobody gave me that title except myself, which feels a big time grown up pants move to make. Often, I think as women, we're certainly coached to wait for those titles to come to us. So I think the title is very apt. I love hearing about the background of it. And it's so interesting to me at the age I am now to think about all of the ways that I claim space as a kid and how those things are still almost like incredibly fundamentally unchanged to me as an adult today. So Leanne is not only the host of this brilliant podcast, which you must go listen, you must go follow. She's an entrepreneur. She's a brilliant CPA. She's stylish, fashionista. I am no <laughs> You are gorgeous, stylish, eye for everything. Tell us a little bit more about your business. Who are you and what are you all about, Leanne? Like I said, I'm a CPA and that really took me on a more of a structured journey, right? To become a CPA, you have to have a certain amount of schooling. You have to have a certain amount of entrepreneurship. You have to have a certain amount of experience in the corporate world in order to earn those letters. And it really goes back to my story of like really wanting no one to be the boss of me. I knew if I had those letters, I always would be able to have a job. I'd always be able to, not just a job, but have a career. But I do think that part of me did that because I needed a sense of security in my life. I needed mm -hmm. to really have a stability in my life that I ignored more of a calling to be an entrepreneur. I think it was always there that I always wanted to really, again, be the boss and own my own business. So much so that I had cultivated, I was going to import shoes from Europe because European shoes were so much nicer than they were back in the days when we had Aldo. I'm dating myself. Like, <laughs> when those were like the popular shoes. And my whole plan was to import shoes from Europe and sell them here. And it was going to be called Stomp, was going to be the name of the store and there'd be a magazine and all this while I was working to pay off my student loans and <laughs> my CPA. It was always something that I really wanted to do. Fast forward, I go through the corporate world, ignoring that voice in me saying, there's something more you can do. There's something that you can do that is not only for you, but could also serve other people who are really interested. That I realized as I was going through corporate, a lot of women would kept, keep asking me, how did you get here? Can you give me some advice? Can I be your mentee? And I would share everything. I'd be like, this is how you ask for a raise. Yeah. This is how you know it's time to leave this particular job. Yes, this is going to be a nervous thing to do. Or this is how I bought my first house, which wasn't even a house for myself. It was a house for my mom. Like really just sharing a lot of money things. And even being in the finance space, it was really surprising because there are a lot of women in finance. But they're not necessarily money managers. It's hey, they're not necessarily. What are they if they're not money managers? I know nothing about finance, the financial world. I come from a healthcare background. So tell our audience a little bit about yeah, uh, like how women work in money without actually managing money. Yeah. So a lot of women are, they could be in tax. They could be in business finance. Like a lot of the skills that we learn as a CPA is skills to learn how to manage business finances, not personal finances. Sure, of course. It's a totally different skill set. So we're looking at how do we maximize the bottom line? 
How do we figure out how we leverage money better? How do we come up with projections? How do we save taxes with all these convoluted rules that aren't applicable to individuals? They're applicable to corporations, which are people sometimes. <laughs> Some of these rules, and you're not really concentrating on your own sense of building well, your own sense of money management, even to the point where one of my friends that I was chatting with, I was asking her what she was invested in. And she said, oh, I'm in my company defined contribution plan, DC plan. I was like, okay, yeah, that's great. What is it invested in? She's like, what do you mean? <laughs> I got the DC every once in a while. I put my money in the RRSP. And I was like, those are tax vehicles. They're like tax deferral vehicles. They're not actually what your money is invested in. And when we peel back the curtain, they were sitting in any market account earning like 2%, not even inflation. It wasn't really set up for her to be invested in things like ETFs, things like mutual funds, because in a defined contribution plan, more likely you're going to have mutual funds. Those ones that would earn 7 8% to outgrow inflation so that you have some money there in the future. So find a lot of times, not just women, but I think... I think it could be men too, but men talk about money more than women talk about money. Yeah, big time. Not necessarily say that they do it in a better way, because a lot of times when I talk to men about money, they talk about individual stocks that they're in and how much they grow. And I'm like, what about the ones that did badly? But at least they're talking about it. At least they're talking about it. Whereas I find with a lot of women, we don't really talk about money. We don't talk about how much each other makes. We're not really encouraged to really think about earning more money, growing our money, we're taught about spending money. Yeah. We're taught about... We're not spending money. It, or not spending money. The images that come to mind when we think about money are pinching pennies and like coupons and Friday. Yeah. Some people are like, oh, 20% off is not a deal. It should be 80% off for Black Friday. But are we talking about investing in companies? Are we talking about all these other areas where we can actually put our dollars towards something that will not only grow our wealth, but actually help the world be a better place. But I think you were talking about money management. I don't really think that as a society, particularly as women who get a lot of negative messages when it comes to having money, when it comes to earning more money, I think it's a conversation that is, is much more crucial. Wanting more money? Wanting more money. And that's not a bad thing. I love this whole narrative of you should do a job because you love it. And like it should be a labor of love. And I'm not a either or person. It should be and it pays you money. Yeah. Like it pays you money. You can't be doing things out of quote unquote love. Yeah. I think it's so interesting because coming from the healthcare sector, there are very obvious gender divides between men and women in the healthcare sector. That's changing a fair bit. But of course, that gender divide in organizational hierarchy, you also see it in pay structures. And then you see it in the ways that those pay structures trickle down into how people organize themselves, the union based messaging or a legislated based messaging. And what I'm finding more and more is that especially younger generations, really are expecting their employers to be really open about conversations about money. And I think it's been a really interesting shift as I myself as a leader and as other leaders create space in ourselves to welcome that request rather than resist against it and say, you're crossing a line, asking for more information than we would have given out in the past or then more information than more transparency. But in actuality, I think that 
these are just like learned systems mm-hmm. of behaving and where women get to participate and where they don't. It's changing really quickly on the subject of money. It is. And I like your point about organizational hierarchies. Because going back to where you're saying where women are in finance, a lot of them are in bookkeeping role, rollership role, not necessarily financial planning or projections or in the investor relations group where you're talking to external parties, like all those different roles that will eventually lead to the CFO role. Mm-hmm. Like think of the CFO role. You, who, do you, who comes to mind? It's usually yeah. not a woman, right? No. So it does really play out. It does play out a lot. And I started my career as an auditor And I remember going to insurance companies and auditing an insurance company. It's very exciting. Super, super exciting. But oftentimes, (laughs) sarcasm, that's sarcasm. (laughs) But oftentimes, like it's really made up of the finance team, which was largely women, unless it was the higher level, the investment team. So insurance companies, they have a huge amount of investments. Investment team was mostly men moving money around, making it bigger. And then the administration of the claims was mostly women. Women. So it got to the extent where I remember my manager at the time and she said, Leanne, this is what's called a pink ghetto. This is a pink ghetto. In lots of industries, you will find the women are in roles where they are doing a lot of the automated type work, a lot of the process work, but not the strategic work, not the leader stuff. And that's where we can get stuck in the systems that create that. Because it's also interesting that those roles are perceived as lower risk. And as women, we are attracted to lower risk because we have an inbred sense of protecting our our sense of safety. I think that we're really like nurtured and encouraged to do what's safe, to maintain decisions that are safe, to be conservative in the next step that we take, to be conservative in our desires so that we can stay safe in many different ways. We can either keep our children safe, we can keep our physical selves safe, we can keep our families safe. And those other positions where are that are more male dominated are more risk comfortable. They're more they're less conservative in terms of decision making, in terms of of where where they might put something on the line. And I just think that's such an interesting kind of career divide, because what you were saying is you to go back to your own story is you always had the call of being an entrepreneur. But what you said at the beginning is you really were motivated to do the safe career pathway, to take the known pathway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really think that uh, it's more I find women are more risk aware. So as opposed to risk at first or risk conservative. I like that. And I find that women are more penalized for taking risks that don't work out. Whereas in your example, women being in more roles that are less risky might also be a conditioning of taking the risk or fearing the penalty that comes with taking the risk. Yeah. I find a lot of men who are in areas where they can take more risks, they have more of a safety net. Yeah. There's not not the perceived penalty. Yeah. And there's less of a perceived, oh, it didn't work out. We didn't work. It it didn't work out. Not you didn't work out. (laughs) Whatever we were doing, it didn't work out. We can try again. There's more room for creativity and there's more stability because 
you can take that risk because if you're married or if you have a partner or if it's just you, it's just you. Whereas even for me, I don't have any children. I'm not married. But I, again, eldest daughter <laughs> in a Caribbean immigrant family, like I, I support my family. So it's not just my paycheck that I'm risking. Right. So I think that plays a role. Also, I do feel women are more penalized for taking risks. Like they've done a lot of studies where when women ask for a raise or ask for money during an offer, sometimes they usually end up getting it. But the organization looks at that person a lot differently. Oh, that person's just out for themselves. Oh, she's so aggressive. That woman's a bitch. Ah, that is so entirely true. I really think that it is the biases that we built in. I'll tell you a story of one of my mentees. I love her. When I was over at one of my jobs, I hired her into my role. And I looked at her resume. She had like a career break in there. She like traveled the world. And in the interview, I kept asking her about that, right? And when I eventually hired her, she was like, I was actually afraid to put that on my resume. You know what I mean? And I was like, I was actually attracted to that on your resume because we need to make a shift in this department. We need someone who has a broader view of the world, someone who has taken different risks. Yes, she had the qualifications and she had the skills, but those parts of her lived experience were actually more attractive to me than probably somebody else. And the interesting thing was fast forward a year or two later, she was hiring into her team. And one of the women on her team, who was a contractor, was applying for finally a full-time role that had come up in that position. And we had thought really strategically about the pay ban, but with HR, like HR is always offer this much. So we did. And she came back to my manager and said, I did some research. This is the money that I want. And my manager came to me and she said, what do you think about this? I can't believe she's come back and asked for more. And I was like, good on her. Did her research. She asked for more. Tell me, like, do you really want to have her, her say no? And now you have to fill that position. And now we're probably going to be another six months out. That means you're going to have to backfill that role. You're going to have to sort that out all for just like asking for a little bit more. Let's wait how much that costs. And it's not like we don't have the budget. What, how much would that really cost? So what do you think about her proposal? She's like, yeah, I guess it makes sense. Like, obviously we're going to do that. And I was like, good, that, that sounds like a good decision. I would totally support you in making that decision. And just before she turns to leave my office, she goes, you know, I didn't ask for more money when I came on to this role. And I said, yeah, you didn't. But on our next one-on-one, -on -one, we could talk about this. <laughs> yeah. I think we're not conditioned to take those risks. That's the, on the personal side. But on the systemic side, on the institutional side, on the bias side, can be penalized for taking those risks. And we are aware of that penalty. We are aware of that penalty. Mm -hmm. sure. Women are risk aware. We are like intuition. Don't you ever feel sometimes like your int intuition is so heightened? Like yes. you're in the room and nobody's saying anything? <laughs> yes. Yes. And actually where I feel like I'm at right now is very much a no better, do better kind of thing. And that I have to swallow my conditioning to be risk aware and risk avoidant to actually take more risks. And sometimes that's saying something that nobody else is saying. Sometimes it's bringing people in the room that aren't previously in the room. 
Sometimes it's admitting things that wouldn't have ever been admitted to me. Painting the picture of the process is to say, listen, this is how you're going to negotiate. This is what's going to be possible. This is what isn't going to be possible. And also having a sense of humor about it, too. Because yeah. I think that's what helps me feel better about the risk is if I can laugh. If I can laugh about how freaking scary everything is. If someone comes to me and says, so-and-so wants a raise, but they'll actually be making like almost the same as what I make. I'll say, let's try and separate their value from your value in the hierarchy of things and let's pay everyone what they're worth. Yeah. And if we all deserve an adjustment, that's probably the truth of the matter. But what we have power over right now is to give is to pay this person their value. Yeah. Let's be excited to do that and not say you're earning more and it's a personal affront to me. It actually has nothing to do with you how much that person earns. And the belief about wherever your position lies in the organization and how much you make disproportionately to the people below or above you gets all it's all facade, right? It doesn't matter. But your point about how a change to someone who's working for you salary being close to yours, right? Yeah. That does bring up a whole bunch of like thoughts and emotions. I again, another job that I was working at, I my immediate boss uh, was deciding to leave. So there was going to be a big restructuring in the whole team. In the meantime, I had to temporarily report to one like one of his peers. Yeah. And my first one-on-one -on -one with this person, I had been working for the company for two and a half, three years, but he never spoke to me, like ever. <laughs> I, I knew so many other people in the whole entire department, never spoke to me. But for the first time, I had a one-on-one -on -one with this person. I think his first or second question to me was in the one-on-one -on -one was, how can we make so much money? And I was like, okay, so this guy had to have checked out all the settler meets, looked at it. And as asking me, how come I make so much money? And I, I looked down on my piece of paper, like to take notes from the meeting. And I just looked up and I was like, because I'm really good at my job. That's why. What but I, answer is acceptable in that moment? Why is he even asking that question? If I could go back in time, I'd be like, give me this question. I really feel, and I remember bringing that energy to slay the mic. Oh, I wish I had used my voice like that in that moment. That was like one of the things that came up for me during the Slay the Mic court. But I had realized he went and he looked probably to see how much he was making compared to what I was making and was probably doing that same math. Having what I was making was a reflection upon his worth or his value to the organization. Yeah. So to go back and be I don't want to use the word empathetic, <laughs> but to like really understand where he was coming from, that's where he was coming from. But actually, when they restructured, we ended up being on the same level. We ended up being peers, which mm -hmm. kind of made sense to me. But I just never really forgot that that conversation. It drove a lot of the energy between us. Mm. But yeah, do raise a good point. And I also just wanted to say, I think the biggest benefit that we could do with each other as people and as women is to demystify some of the politics in the corporate workplace you yeah. know and if you can't get that if you could get that from your immediate boss who's your sponsor if you could get that's the most ideal but if you can't to have those mentors outside the organization that can help you navigate corporate politics because there are rules right there are rules and even in that one where this person's asking for a raise 
sitting from your position, not really thinking about what the impact is on your manager, the larger group, the larger firm, you could be surprised, but it's not necessarily your doing. It's the way, this is the way things work around here, which is also another reason why I really liked entrepreneurship is because you can set the way things are done. (laughs) Yeah. So let's talk about your entrepreneurship a little bit and your business, Wealth Nouveau. And what was that kind of pivotal moment for you? So you've been in a lot of rooms, you've worked with a lot of people, you've seen a lot of the corporate playbook. And all of that, plus your own personal lived experience, has motivated you to say, there's a gap in what people know and what they could be doing and how they could be feeling and what they could be building. And I want to fill that gap. What was that pivotal moment for you? I honestly think it was a combination of that voice getting louder and being like, when is this going to happen? Like you have entrepreneurial voice. Yeah. The entrepreneurial voice, like you have the skills, you have a great network, you have money put away. Like it was just getting so loud. It was literally getting very loud. And the role that I was in, they had a restructuring. I ended up leaving that role. And at that time I was like, okay, I'm going to go to a smaller shop that is doing something purposeful. And that's where it started. Okay, let me do some entrepreneurial things. So I ended up working with a lot of women in my own practice, helping them build their businesses, think about finances around their business. And then I also joined another organization. It was for helping Black professionals in technology, getting money not only from corporations, but the government in order to find placements. And I had done a lot of not just finance, but a lot of the strategy work that founder. And then I ended up working with another founder. And the voice was like, you're cheating. I'm like, I'm being strategy and finance for founders. I'm not the founder. You know what I mean? Like, so I think at that point, that's not as close as possible. An entrepreneur without actually being an entrepreneur. Exactly. Exactly. So that on purpose, unconsciously on purpose, like unconsciously on purpose, being closer and closer to being yeah, the risk taker, the I don't know. And I do perceive being an entrepreneur as much more risky than any other. Yeah, I, it definitely is. It's you. It's like literally yeah. hard. I heard a, an, an entrepreneur that I interviewed really said it's the hardest self-development program. <laughs> yeah, I think I was still like doing my whole Take a little risk, but not a lot of risk. Just managing the risk. I don't know. I think even where I am now, I like where I am now. So with Wealth Nouveau, it's really a platform to help women grow their wealth. And I'm doing one-on-one. I'm doing group coaching, like a lot of stuff around that. There's still an idea of maybe we can have a, a an investment platform that is geared toward helping all people, but especially women. feel like I'm just listening a little bit more to see what is actually out there and, uh, and available for me. But I do feel like that voice is really loud. And entrepreneurship could look a lot, it could look very different. Like I feel building, for me, where I am right now in my life, building a company, the energy to build what is ideal in my head is a lot of energy. So it's either I have to learn the skill of either realizing I will not have all the skills. So stop trying to like learn everything to do it yourself. That's that whole no boss of me that sometimes needs to be turned down to really dialing up on partnering and dialing up on shared purpose and finding maybe it's not 100% about me creating it myself, 
but working with others or even a partnership or an acquisition or something else that makes sense in order to really build what I want to build. Yeah. To really execute that vision. And entrepreneurship looks different. There's a whole bunch of different avenues, a whole whole bunch of different routes. So I think I'm still on that. I'm listening to the voice and uh, yeah, listening to the voice a little bit more, but it's not a, it's not like a direct message. Yeah. I heard you say something, which is the way you want it to exist and then doing the building work to get it from here to the way you want it to exist. I can really relate to that, especially in the context of Medium Lady, the podcast, the community. It's like all of the wonderful options to get what I envision to a place that is more actualized, more what I really was motivated. I guess maybe you could call it the end goal, although I think that when you're building something like this, when it's coming from you and it relies on you, that is a never-ending type of pursuit. But what I also have to remind myself, that can feel exhausting, the gap, the delta between here and there. And that I've already gotten from here to there, which was no medium lady at all. And now medium lady in 51 episodes and community and collaborators and friends and when whatever that's going to grow to be in the future. And that originally this was the goal. Yeah. The goal was to have a podcast. And now I have a podcast. It still actually makes me feel crazy when I say that out loud. I have a podcast because I had to take it for myself. I wanted a podcast desperately for probably 10 years. Oh, wow. Long time. Congratulations. Like, oh, good thing. No, this is amazing. Yeah. The real thing was the truth of the matter was, is the way to have a podcast is to make a podcast. And yep. I was the only one who was going to give myself permission to have that podcast. I feel like entrepreneurship, although having a podcast is somewhat entrepreneurial. For sure. I have no income whatsoever. <laughs> I have a net negative. Anyway, we can talk more about that. But I think that is you're the only one who gives yourself the title of entrepreneur. And that's something that I'm reconciling with as somebody who did the same thing. I had a lot of entrepreneurial ideas. And yet I went into a very secure, very straightforward path of education as a nurse. I went into a very secure area of acute healthcare career as a nurse. Bedside nursing, there's Lots of jobs, lots of job security. It's a good job. And then went into nursing leadership and administration and education and all these other things. And that very much was very comfortable for me because I was very risk aware as the oldest child of five, a family of five. My dad's a social worker. My mom's a nurse. We grew up on very modest means. And entrepreneurship to me was... Um, not an option until, like you said, the voice kept getting louder and louder. And then I really wanted a podcast. And I was like, well, how do I get a podcast? How can I like figure this out? Oh, no, I shouldn't. I could never be like those podcasts. But you put one thing in front of the other and you're not trying to be armchair expert or you're not trying to be Glennon Doyle or Brene Brown. You're mm -hmm. just trying to be yourself and you just put one thing in front of the other. What do you think is the next small step for you? Perhaps it's not crystallizing the big goal, the big ambition, but like in the next six months or in the next six weeks, breaking it down smaller, because that's an idea that I found more comforting mm -hmm. as I just completed 50 episodes and it stared me in the face. And I had this like bit of an identity crisis. I could put another 50 episodes in front of those 50 
but what am I building now? Yeah, it's really interesting that it's always like this continuous build, right? You open the door, you get all the way up the steps, there's yeah. a door, you open the door. and But yeah, I really think that to be an entrepreneur, you really have to ring the cash register. Ooh, so, say you more. Need, you need to ring the cash register, which means you have, to tran- yes, you have to translate the value you're providing into dollars. Hey, I think that's just also another key area that it's a mindset shift. It's a huge mindset shift, particularly for, you know, women where we're told, oh, you could just do that for free. Yeah. Or you could, why don't you just volunteer and do that? Oh, you know, and we're all often in these spaces where we're just giving, giving of our labor. And that labor, if you turned it into giving labor to something that has value, you could turn around and take that money and now spread it and make it bigger, you know? So I think for me, this season is really about ringing the cash register, translating the value I provide into products and services that my target market values and will pay me for because I'm helping them achieve a particular pain point and removing it from their lives. And that actually has value. I go back to my manager, the one who had traveled a bit and I had hired. She called me when she was leaving the firm and she's, Leanne, I have an offer. You always talk to me about managing money and like asking for money. Can you help me negotiate this offer that I hope is going to come through in a couple of days? So I sat with her. We, I talked with her. I had her do the research when I really helped her approach it from more like of a one-on-one collaborative standpoint. And even though the offer was coming in more than what she was making, I was like, no, you're way more valuable than that. And literally I could, I know that. <laughs> and she ended up making $35,000 more than the drop she had before and $17,000 more than their initial offer. And so I was like, I did that for free. Yeah. <laughs> I helped her for free. <laughs> so imagine if I said, if I could help you negotiate from a perspective of where you feel comfortable in what you're doing and that it's a win-win, I feel like it's about now taking those skills, creating a product, a service, and finding the target market. Stepping out of my comfort zone and doing some marketing, facing the rejection of, yeah, it's a little out of my price point now and collecting testimonials, like all the things that are entrepreneurial. So I think for this season, it's really about ringing the cash register. And it could look in so many different ways. When you're looking to make your first offer, it could be a course, it could be one services, your book, it could be an ebook, it could be work. It could be a whole bunch of different things. So just really, what is that one offer that you are going to, now that you've done a whole bunch of different things, figuring out what it is that you really want to do and doubling down on that. Mm. You, Aaron, if it is the podcast, there's so many different ways to monetize a podcast, right? Mm. If you do advertising, you can have it sponsored. There's a lot of different ways where, again, you're still delivering value to your audience. You're still really helping them succeed helping them eliminate pain points in their lives. And that's valuable. And in our society, that gets translated into money. (laughs) That's the way it works. So yeah, yeah, I definitely think this season for me is about learning how to ring the cash register and learning those skills of being, you are the face of your business. Sometimes I always, oh, let me figure out what the name of my company is going to be so that I can hide. My gosh. That was 
literally <laughs> my entire purpose for taking that course, I didn't know it at the time, was how can I be awesome and hide at the same time? Right, at the same and time. Literally staring me in the face and say, you cannot and you will not. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's the whole thing. You're like, okay, this is going to be really awesome, but I don't want anyone to know it's me. Yeah, I, I think it comes down to we've been socialized to say we. Like we. Oh, the team. We. This. Everything is we. And to the point where it's like some people take advantage of it. I remember like in university, like how many group projects are you in university when there's always that one person who does absolutely nothing? Yeah. You still got to say we. <laughs> All of us except for that person. But it's interesting because in my earlier life, I was up for associate partnership in a, an accounting firm. And they said, now when you write your business case for making partner, you don't want to say the you cannot say we. Yeah. So the whole ride on getting there was we. And then it was like, I, like, I, strike that out. No, I, like, specify what you did as a part of that team. That's the only thing that counts. And what I find is really interesting, particularly about these new generations that are coming up, they want to know what your lived experience is. Like, they want to know about you. Like, a lot of the people I listen to, they're not giving general advice. They're like, this is how it applies to me. This is why I don't really think that I like I'm on this thing right now where I don't really like Black Friday. I, I don't really like the consumerism of it. I don't like that it comes right after a holiday. I know we're in Canada, so it's not our holiday, but a holiday where traditionally you got to do a lot of the work. And then I don't know. I just feel like there's a lot more value in us saying I, but I don't think the corporate system is built that way to really lean into saying to saying I, unless you are straight, able-bodied, white male. That's wow. yeah. I'm going to have to think about that a little bit more because I agree with you. And I think that depending on sector, you really are conditioned to present yourself as an ambassador of the bigger picture, not as an individual contributor. Yeah. So we have a lot of people for whom you're allowed to be an individual contributor. And we have more of our workforce, which is often made up of women, people of racialized minorities, people who are disabled, who are of more diverse lived experiences that are actually not considered individual contributors, which then also neutralizes their individual lived experience and their individual contribution as a person with a unique point of view to the collective. So I even encourage people that I work with and people that I coach in my nine to five to introduce yourself first and last name. Yeah. Yep. Introduce yourself based on your expertise, not on the area where you work. Yeah. You know, it's very common in healthcare to say, oh, hi, I'm a nurse and I work in neurology. Yeah. Well, my name is Erin Vandevin and I provide expert pediatric care to patients with brain tumors and seizures and a number of other neurological. And that's a real point of reframing for people. It can be one of the easier but still uncomfortable ways to continue to progress the conversation about, about individual value. And it also, I think, gives people a better sense of individual meaning in the broader picture of the work. I really like that. I really like that. Like when we attack, like when you introduce yourself and you attach yourself to the company, we need to stop doing that. We, we need to, what are we providing that company? What is the skill or expertise that we are providing that company? And it just so happens that I'm in the stroke unit. Not that, that's right. Not that I am 
the stroke unit. I think that's so important. I really do think. And I think that's why I'm, I, it's going to make some connections for me, I think, after this recording around how sometimes it gets hard to leave an organization. Like maybe there's reasons why they want us to do that because you feel like you are loyal to that organization or that's the only kind of organization that's going to reward you in that way, even though they're under rewarding you. I often say loyalty is so overrated. <laughs> like it's so overrated. And if you are more likely to understand your value and if you're in a place that isn't rewarding you for that value, of course, all different industries are different. But if you are in a place that is not rewarding you for that value appropriately, it's easier for you to move somewhere else as if you don't necessarily see your value tied to that organization that it is actually. There's always that analogy of the water bottle, right? Like a bottle of water at a convenience store versus on a plane versus in a high-end hotel. <laughs> It's all water. It's all water. And they all are priced differently, just depending on where they are. It's so true. It's so true. I think, too, I do think, again, this is somewhat sector dependent because you have grown up in your career in the private sector. And I've grown up in my career in the public sector. And there's a lot of conditioning. I don't want to call it like scarcity mindset, but it is very much about what the sector can hold and what the sector can compete with and what it can't compete with. And also making sure that your value doesn't tip outside of what the sector can hold is just like really interesting and important discourse to have. But I think also as I see generations younger than myself coming up into this public sector system that are less conditioned to, to want to have employer loyalty, and more conditioned to want to understand the individual contributions that they're making and the meaning that they're deriving from, including compensation for the work that they're doing within the public sector, I think is creating a really monumental shift within a lot of our public systems, education, healthcare, public sector work, working as a civil servant or representing public office. Like these are all like becoming really interesting generational shifts in meaning plus compensation. And we used to look for mostly meaning and compensation afterwards. I'm saying we meaning like public, uh, public sector workers. It's like you're deriving meaning from the work that you're doing to serve the public and you're compensated. Yeah, I don't know. You go back far enough. Like my mom worked for the government. Yeah. And I think the value proposition for working in the government Although they had its problems in terms of like promotion of women, promotion of people of color, the value proposition was you earned more than a living wage. You had a pension. You had stability. You had all these things because you were, your purpose was to give to the economy, give yeah. to the public. So in exchange for your public service, you received fair and rewarding compensation right like that was the thing you wanted to be a teacher you wanted to yeah. be a, you wanted to be a doctor but i think as we've elevated more and more politicians to see the public service as a way to commoditize and pull dollars from in order for in order to pay less taxes i don't know like 
This is where I I could probably go off on a tangent. <laughs> this is where like you and I just go for coffee and talk. Yeah, about like the social yeah. contract is broken. It's totally yeah. broken. Yes, it's totally broken. If you should earn a good living salary wage with training and benefits and challenge and all those things in the public sector, you should. But that's not what's been happening. That's literally not what's been happening. And then if you are in the private sector, you should have all those things as well, too. But if you want to take a little bit more risk or if you want to wallet well, stuff, then that's your upside. You know what right. I mean? That's the risk that you're taking. And the compensation follows the risk, I feel. Yeah. And the compensation follows the risk. I remember a really good friend of mine. We went to university together. I was telling him, oh, maybe I will just get a job in the public service and then I'll work on my entrepreneurial thing on yeah. the side. Yeah. Uh, and he was like, you are going to go work for the public service? Like, <laughs> Literally, you'll be there for three weeks and you'll just, you'll want to change everything. Yeah. He's, he's like, don't do that. Don't do that. At least go somewhere in the private sector where they actually like innovation and they like change. and like that would be- That's a whole other conversation about cultivating talent. Yes, yes. Oh, man, that's another episode. Okay, Leanne, I could talk to you for hours. I know. How have we not done this sooner? And I think the episode will have to split into two parts. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. Please make sure to reach out and connect on Instagram with me. I can be found at medium.lady over there. If you have any feedback about today's conversation, you can head to the pink tile in my feed for the latest episode and we can always continue the conversation over there. If you like this podcast, please make sure to share a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you love this podcast, please share it on social media. Be sure to tag me so I can personally thank you for growing our community. Finally, be sure to follow this podcast wherever you're listening and make sure your notifications are on. Don't forget, you're doing such a good job. Bye.